Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are ebbing closer and closer to the end of our time in this book. We're at week 11, chapter 11 in, in uh, Gospel Treason, and we have covered a lot of ground. Um, I expect that you may be experiencing some of the sore toes that I have experienced as I've talked about our hearts. Um, each week I've been, I personally have been challenged by the content when I'm preparing to share all of these things God has shown me and that good teachers have taught me. Uh, all I've been able to teach and discuss with you are things that I have personally wrestled with and I have struggled through, I've learned, I have been challenged by as I've walked this walk. My prayer all along these weeks has been that these lessons would help expose areas that you had in the shadows and point you to that soothing balm of God's word that not only convicts of sin areas, but it also gives grace and it gives restoration to that brokenness. I really, I really mean it when I say that I hope this has been challenging and though it may have been painful, that it will be used to strengthen your faith and that it will help you in your walk and in your sanctification journey all to God's glory. That has been something I've really wanted um, for all of you, and I hope that at the end of this time that that is what we can say about it. All right, so I want you to help me out here. I need some feedback from you. I'm going to ask you a, few, a couple of questions, um, and they may not seem connected exactly to our discussion right now, but I'll show you how they are in a bit. But So Gospel Treason is the book that we're going through, so maybe it will make sense to you when I ask them. So first of all, how are you justified? You know, there are different ways that we could explain this. So let me hear from you. How would you say someone is justified? This is not a test, by the way. If you say something totally off, I may correct you, but I'm not going to make fun of you. Too loud. Kidding. How's someone justified? Yes. They believed God. Good. How else? Or what, what how could we expand on that? By faith, faith in Christ, okay? What else? Yes. Okay, repent. We've repented of sins. Believe. Right. Yeah. Okay, now. I think that's right. I think we put those together. There's, you'd ask all kinds of people that question, and some people are going to talk for an hour on how that is, and other people, we get real short answers, which is great. There's no problem there. All right, so second question. I forgot to put these up here. Second one, and then, is how is someone sanctified? How are you sanctified? Or how does sanctification work? Go ahead. Sanctified by the word. Good. Working of the spirit. All these are right. What else? It's a process. Right. So I'm going to jump on that here for a second. When we talk about sanctification, there's actually like three types. It's actually all one. But they, they work like this. 
when we are saved, we are sanctified, right? Positionally, we're positionally sanctified. We're set apart, right? We are different now um, when we are saved. In the future, we will be fully sanctified, right? When we are in with the Lord, whether he comes back or he takes us before that time, we are then fully sanctified. Somewhere where we are right now, or where we are, not somewhere, where we are right now, we're somewhere in that progressively sanctified. Each day or each time over the, as time goes on, we should be looking more and more like Christ. You've seen that picture before. I've drawn it. Other people have shown you. It's kind of like a squiggly line that goes kind of up and down, but the general per, uh, direction of that is in the upward thing, uh, upward direction. Actually, it should kind of go this way, right? Yeah, so it goes this direction, right? Three and backwards. But the, the idea is this, that not every day is better than the last, right? Some days we have bad days. Some days we kind of take, take three steps forward and two steps back. But in the general direction of our life should look like we are looking more like Christ. That's that progressive sanctification that we're in right now. With those answers in mind, what I want you to think about, though, is this. Justification, sanctification, we're saved and becoming more like Christ, what that looks like. We need to talk about idols and where those come in and our hearts and all of this. And then what, did, what does all this have to do with our heart idols? What does justification and sanctification have to do? You know, about five or six weeks ago during the, the lesson, I, and then last week I actually showed it as well, I drew a, a tree that was similar to this, right? And in that, oh, I thought I had these. Hold on. There. I wanted them to all come up at once. So. All right. This was that fruit of that tree. Remember when we talked about this? And that's not all fruit. These are the bad fruits, right? These are the things I, I asked for your help on. What is the kind of things you would see in someone's life that's living for an idol? Or the things where we, uh, we choose not to live for Christ. And so what does our life look like? So we kind of did th some of these things. We also talked about some of the motivations of our heart that would motivate us to do this type of thing, right? And so... When we are living for something or someone other than Christ, this bad fruit, behind me I point back here, but you guys aren't looking, but it's the same thing, <laughs> is, uh, is what we see in our life, right? When we start to see these types of things on a regular basis, then we recognize that there is something that's out of whack as believers, right? We all can agree with that. The more we let this fruit stay on our tree, so the tree is our life and we see this fruit of our life, the more we see that it's really our idols that are ensnaring us in a trap. As the tree looks like this, we have motivations that are feeding that fruit. And what ends up happening, this is what I said five or six weeks ago, is that it changes our identity. We start to change who we identify as. You know, it isn't that we are just seeking or retreating to a counterfeit refuge, but idolatry changes who we think we are. Idolatry is like that, you know, the crazy mirror at uh, the circus or at the fair? You know, you look at it and your head and you know, your torso becomes like three times as long and your legs are short or, you know, whatever. It, it changes how we see ourselves, our view 
of ourselves, how we think about who we are, it's all distorted and it, it morphs. And we start to believe the crazy circus mirror image rather than really who we are. Given enough time, thinking and living this way, we start to redefine ourselves in terms of these idols. And when we redefine ourselves, this redefinition of ourselves leads to the most deadly counterfeit. And yet it is one of the most prevalent identity replacements that we face. What we're talking about today is we fall into the trap of believing that I am my own redeemer, that you are your own redeemer. Now, don't get me wrong. I haven't heard a uh, born-again, truly saved believer say those words to me. I don't think I've ever heard anybody who's truly saved that says, I'm my own believer. No one says, hey, I got it figured out. I have redeemed myself. I've got it. But most Christians have enough theological knowledge and are savvy enough to, to put a different spin on it. That's why a lot of times I like to use examples of children because they haven't learned spin. They haven't learned how to, uh, the, the gray areas. So often on children, things are just black and white, right? And what, what's happening up here is coming out here. And adults, we don't do that very often, right? We, we like to put the spin and, the, and the, everything is in a gray, right? Most of us who believe that this um, also, when we have believed this idea that I am my own redeemer, we believed it long enough that we are blind to this thinking. We don't recognize that we think this way. No, no believer is, is saying it with their lips but their life is showing that that's how they believe, what they are thinking. You know, we, we love the gospel. We love salvation and, and the change it has in our lives. We were dead and now we're alive. We, we had no hope and no future except for hell, but now we have abundant life with a purpose and an eternity with our Savior. I find myself thinking this way, right? The gospel saved me. I'm thankful for that. But now let's get on with life. Let's keep going on. I get, it's time to move, right? What do I do now? I, sa I said this before. I keep saying that. I know. I'm sorry. I repeat myself a lot. But, you know, it was like the salvation. I, I, it's got, it saved me. And like, okay, this is great. But now I'm, I put it on the shelf. Because that's what the gospel was for, for salvation. And I'm going to tell people about it. I may pull it off to, to share it with people, but in the rest of my life, it stays up there and it doesn't affect how I parent or how I, the type of um, employee I am or the way I drive on the Lloyd Expressway or what I think in those things. Too many of us think of the gospel, it's like the jump start in life. We just needed that initial push to get going. But I'll take it from here. Thanks. I've got it. Now what it is, it's all about the hard work of pleasing God. I read my Bible to see what God says I should and shouldn't do. And then I'm working really hard to do those things or not do those things. 
we've experienced this feeling of going along pretty well and then like the wheels fall off. Like what do we do? Those type of people or those folks, not those type of people, this is us, right? The, the, the wheels fall off, we lose steam, we lose joy, we feel spiritually dry, we're lost, we're disillusioned. Like, how did we get here? I remember when things were great and things are not great now. What is going on? We're confused. Can't figure out what's gone wrong. And we start searching for the key to get us back in the place where we had joy and things were running on all cylinders. And when we do that, we start to blame other people. If this hadn't happened, if I hadn't met this person, if they hadn't done that to me, then I wouldn't be here. Find fault on all these things that used to encourage us, but now they think no one's around to do that. No one's around to encourage us. It's, it's all problems. In the gospel, it takes us, it changes us. And when God saves us, he gives us a new identity, right? We're now known as his children. We are known as a friend of God. And because God's love first transforms our hearts, it also changes our behaviors. He does transform our outer, more noticeable behavior. That's where we usually focus in our life, right? The things that come out of us because it's easily seen, but this transformation has its genesis in the renovation of our hidden inner person, our inner self, our, our heart. Without the recognition of this prior and ongoing work of love, we won't have the courage or the strength we'll need to fight the sin in the way that he is calling us to. We won't have the faith to continue to say, yes, Lord, unless we are resting securely in the eternal promises he will keep and the work that God has already done. The Lord begins his transforming work in us by building an entirely new foundation upon which to construct our outer, more noticeable behavior. It's this inner transformation of our identity the reality of his making, remaking, and sustaining up in our inner person that we frequently neglect when striving to live the Christian life. And it's in our inner person, in our identity, our motives, our affections, and trust that the truths of the gospel are most critical. In response to God's love for us, the Spirit refashions us, both inside and out. He makes us profoundly new. We're a new creation, right? He changes everything about us. He's giving us new answers to the fundamental questions of life, like, who am I? Or, why was I born? These are essential questions about our identity and I think too many of us are suffering from amnesia, even those of us who claim to believe in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I think, I'm sure you would be able to answer these fundamental questions biblically. 
say, who am I? I'm a child of God. And why was I born? It's to serve him. Right? Many of you have maybe grew up with the catechisms and learned the catechisms, and that's the first question of the Westminster Catechism. This is a very shortened version, but it goes into those things. Those are the things that we learn. My premise, though, is that even though we know these basic answers, we don't see how these answers actually connect with our daily lives. We miss it. We haven't actually forgotten these truths because I can ask you about them and you can tell me about them, right? I be- what I believe is we have this spiritual amnesia. It's an amnesia that has obscured our true identity as it's been defined by the gospel. Maybe I'll say it this way. This spiritual amnesia might best be understood in this. Even though we believe the gospel, the occasions in which the gospel, the occasions of the gospel are the incarnation, Christ's sinless life, his death, bodily resurrection, ascension of the Son of God. We believe the occasions in which the gospel actually intersect and powerfully affect our daily life. Those are infrequent. And as we think about those things, we miss them. We're not focusing on them. We agree with these truths of Scripture, but we frequently find ourselves living life like functional atheists, not much different from our unbelieving friends and neighbors down the street. Only difference is we've got plans on Sunday morning. We forget who he is, what he's done, and we don't know why it really matters. And because of this, we fail to remember who we are and how he has called us to live. Look at this. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to um, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the, um, underneath the pews there. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, so he starts here with the greeting, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he's saying who he's writing this to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's writing this to believers, right? This is written to us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Jesus, of Jesus our Lord. He's got this beginning. But here's what I want to hit on here. He says, his, which is Christ's divine, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. See the character traits that Peter is listing here that mark the believer's life? He says faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Now, he lists all these things. He talks about we have all of these things granted to us by God for life and godliness. What's life? Our life. What we do. Who we are. How we act. Godliness is the way that we do life, right? This interesting statement in verse 9 says that whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's telling us we have all of these things that have been given to us and we forget them. We're blinded. He says that one reason we don't grow in our ordinary grateful obedience is because we've gotten this amnesia, right? We've forgotten that we were cleansed from our sins. In other words, he's saying an ongoing failure in our sanctification, that slow process of change into Christ-likeness, is the direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. If we lack the comfort and the assurance that his love and cleansing are meant to supply, our failures will handcuff us to yesterday's sins. And we won't have faith or courage to fight against them. Or the love of God that's meant to empower this war, we, we will miss out on that. Now please don't mi miss the significance of Peter's statement. If we fail to remember our justification, our redemption, and reconciliation, we will struggle in our sanctification. That's P Peter's warning here. If you look at your life and it seems as though your growth has been at a standstill, if you uh, don't see that your faith, your virtue, your knowledge, 
self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, affection, brotherly love. If, they've, if they haven't grown in measurable ways, Peter's saying it's because you've forgotten the gospel. Christ died to cleanse you from sin. He's saying here that you've become nearsighted. You can only see what's right in front of you. Spiritual blindness has overtaken you so that you don't see your, sta- your Savior standing right there before your eyes. For instance, how can our faith grow if all we see before us is a record of our own failures? If all we're looking at is, I've messed up once again. That's all I'm seeing. If we don't understand God's love for us in the gospel, then the faith we need to fight against sin's allurement, allurement will be absent. And although we know that we need to do better, we won't truly believe that we can truly change. We will doubt his love for us. We'll wonder why he doesn't give us what we think we need. We'll feel as though we've been deserted in the battle. We won't see our captain leading us on. And boy, I tell you what, you start to blame other people for those things as well. My life is rough because these people are not giving me what I need. Our spouse becomes the issue. Our friends are not investing in us enough. Our church doesn't love us enough. The gospel message, you have been cleansed from sin, is the pinnacle of God's loving work in the world. And just as it is the work that saves us, it also is the work that transforms and sustains us. The gospel is the message that must remain paramount throughout all our life. It must not be relegated to yesterday's news or tucked away with faded photos of our first steps in Christ. Note, Jesus' death cleanses us from sin, but it also guarantees our ultimate transformation into his image. This transformation occurs, Paul's write, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, while we gaze upon him, think about him, and muse on him as he was revealed himself to us in the gospel. He says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Behold his glory in the gospel and be transformed. It's so easy for us to completely forget who we are. Sinners saved by grace, created in an image of God for his pleasure, weak and dependent creatures who must rely every moment of every day on his grace and mercy. We've got problems with spiritual amnesia because we've sung the world song too many times. Why do I need to hide myself, we wonder. We think that we don't need to hide ourselves in him. We just need to find the key to the successful Christian life. Just give me the 12 steps I need so I can be better. Hey, here's my problem. Just tell me what to do to fix it. I've been there. I just want the easy answer. 
we're all living on this side of the fall, clothing, clothes it, <laughs> can't talk. We're living on this side of the fall, clothing ourselves with the fig leaves, right? We're false identities, sowing and sowing in vain effort, trying to make ourselves presentable. We don't want people to see us as we are because we're proud and we are ashamed. We're too proud to admit our sin and we're too ashamed to say we still need a savior. We aren't seeing ourselves as we really are. We've forgotten his love and the gospel and our true identity. So then the question is, what do we do? What do we do with this problem? How do we move away from this false identity and this idolatry? Well, one of the things that we do is we start with the spiritual disciplines, okay? You know what I mean by the spiritual disciplines? I, I'm, I'm talking about reading our Bible. I'm talking about prayer, worship, meditation on God and his word, serving, giving, those things. These are great disciplines, and we're, we are to live disciplined lives, right? But the danger is moving from I have the wrong identity and to change that I just have to start doing disciplines. Um, so I've, I've got the wrong identity. If I just start doing the spiritual disciplines, that will fix the problem. Well, what ends up happening <laughs> is that it slowly becomes this thing about performance, now I just got to focus and do the disciplines the right way. I got to wake up and make sure that I've started this time and I do these things and we get this checklist. I do my checklist. I don't have a problem with checklists. As a pilot, that's how I live my life. I've got to do checklists. But if we're living our walk, making sure that we just check the check boxes, it becomes about a performance and we, things start to feel stuffy. They start to feel dry there's no joy. We have no sense of freedom because the, the sunshine of God's grace is crowded out by the dark clouds of performance and our spiritual duties. The disciplines are not the problem. It's the idea that we have to keep all the plates spinning. You know what I mean? You've been to the circus or and two examples of circus in one talk. That's wild. But, uh, you know, the, the thing, they have the long stick and they put the, they spin the plate. It's always amazing how they do that. And then they do one and then they do another. And before long, they got like 37 of these things going on up there and they're like juggling or whatever. And they, they do those things. But the, you know, they, they get the one spinning and they set it down and they, they get to number 10 and this one starts slowing down. So they run over to spin this one back up and they're moving all along. And it's like, how do they keep that all going? Eventually, they're not, right? Eventually, they've got to stop that. They can't. There's a limit to that. But that's how we live our lives. We're trying to spin all the plates. And a plate falls off and breaks. And it throws chaos into our lives. The, the purpose of spiritual disciplines is to know God better. And to experience communion with him. We get to take communion today. It's Communion Sunday, Lord's Supper. And we, we, are, we do this to have communion among us and with God. It's a good reminder for us that we need to be doing that. But we don't do this or the spiritual disciplines to earn God's favor. God's favor is yours every day already based on someone else's work. 
God's favor is yours every day based on Christ and his righteousness, not on anything that you are doing or anything that you're not doing. When they are functioning as they should, the spiritual disciplines, rather than suffocating you, will strengthen your relationship with God. So maybe the question then is this, what's the difference between making a wise use of the spiritual disciplines and falling into this idolatrous trap of performance for self? Well, it has to go to our motivation. Why are we motivated to do the spiritual disciplines? Self-performance says that I'll do these things to uh, have good standing with God. But godly discipline says, I'll do these things because I love God. I want to know him better. I want to experience more of his grace. And I'll do it knowing that he could never love me any more than he already does because I'm in Christ. You were meant to live the Christian life, walking with your Savior, in communion with your Savior, delighting in your Savior, trusting in your Savior, not marching on courageously in your own strength. But here's what happens, especially in a church that has a high view of God's word. You're taught to go to scripture for biblical principles relating to marriage, parenting, finances, idols of the heart, pride, and so on. So far, so good. We should go to God's word for that. But the depraved sinners that we are, we seek ways to boil everything down to a few principles. We create that system or a checklist that we can work on in our own strength. But God didn't design the Christian life to be boiled down to a checklist. You know how I know that? Because if he had, we wouldn't have a Bible that looked like this. We'd just go to, well, A for anxiety. Ah, there we go. All right, that's what I do. And S for sexual sin. Okay, there we go. I got the answers. That's all I need. Now, he composed the Bible largely of, uh, an, it's in a narrative form because he intended the Bible to draw us into relationship with him, not to serve as a system that we can take and run with on our own. Because if it was just a system that we can run with on our own, we wouldn't need God at all, right? We have to get rid of this checklist mentality and revel in the relationship God intends for us to have with him. We can confuse trust in the security of Christian principles. We can confuse that with faith in God. Take a parent, for example. You can take a class, you can read a book, and you can talk with other parents to learn good parenting principles. And then you trust that those principles are going to transform your child's heart instead of God. You know how I know that? I see parents that are struggling, and they talk to another parent. The parent says, well, this is what worked for us. So they try and do it. It doesn't work, so God's the problem. But they're trusting in a principle or a tool to use that. But we do this with ourselves. You don't have kids or your kids are long gone, right? I go down a checklist every day of my spiritual disciplines I'm supposed to do. I start to think, well, if I put in the sweat equity, I'm... I'm guaranteed a fruitful, godly life, right? I spent seven days in a row doing all the things I was supposed to do, and Friday stinks, right? 
The way that thinking usually ends in some type of heartache or disappointment. And we're grudgingly pushed through miserable, pretending that the system is going to work when it isn't. We have to trust in God alone. Trusting in the principles makes us feel like we are in control, but trusting God takes us out of the driver's seat. We have to give up control. We have to trust somebody else. I saw this post, actually, just yesterday or the day before, a few of you posted this quote from John Piper. It said, I want to slam the door on the assumption that you can have Jesus as your greatest treasure and yet have your heart clinging to something else for satisfaction. Isn't that good? We do that. The Christian life is all about Christ. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence has to be in Christ. Paul continues in verse 9 of that. He says, I want to be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what we've got to do. Now, you've got a hand out there that asks some questions for you to, to help think through this. If you didn't get one, I'll get it to you. On the back is a prayer. It's a Puritan prayer. What I have found helpful is that when I get myself in the corner and I recognize that I'm starting to trust in my own checklist or my own disciplines or I'm not even doing the disciplines at all and life is hard and I'm wondering why, how I can fix it and I don't want life to be this way. I found that prayer is very helpful. But I've also found that when life is really hard and I'm really struggling, it's really hard to pray. It's, it's hard to know what to pray. It's hard to think the things I have had many times where I just go, God, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm thankful that I don't have to know those things. But that example of that Puritan prayer, we can pray those prayers. These are things written down for us that we can use. There's the, uh, there's the book Valley of Vision, which is a, a, a book of Puritan prayers. Those can be helpful. I, wouldn't encur- I don't encourage you to always pray just someone else's prayers. I don't think that's wise or good. Um, but those, those can be very helpful. I think some of the ways we can take these prayers is to read them. And what are the things they're saying? How are they speaking to God? How are they talking about their struggles and pain? Does that, any of that resonate with you? How can I put this in my own words? The Psalms are excellent. Go to the Psalms, read those, and Pray those back to God. What better way to to speak to God than to use his own words back to him? The Psalms are an excellent way to do that. Taking time to pray and to be still and listen and hear God, take some time to focus. Those are great ways to, to get back on there and focus on that.